So we uh, are coming before the Lord today. I want to tell you, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. Um, There is a line that I trust, if I say it, every one of us here would know it. So let me give it a try. If you don't know it, I'm sorry. I don't know where you've been for the last uh, 100 years. God bless us, everyone. All right, now be honest. Is there anybody who doesn't know that line? God bless us, everyone. No hands? All right, good. Uh, This is the most memorable line from one of the most compelling Christmas stories of all time. Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, has been brought to us in perhaps dozens or maybe even hundreds of virtual and visual tellings in TV, movies, and theater. From full-length movies with Jim Carrey, Patrick Stewart, or the beloved 1984 version with George C. Scott, which for many is the only version, to Disney's Donald Duck and the Muppets. You may recall that as each ghost leads Ebenezer Scrooge through various visions of what was, what is, and what may be, they're often looking through a window and watching. This is much of the sense of what we are trying to do here at Calvary this whole month, is to look through a window to see what was, So that we can see what is, so that we might become what Christ has made us to be. We look through a window, and the window that we're going to be looking through is, of course, the window of Scripture. And today we're going to be looking through Mark's window, (laughs) through his telling of a story that many of us are familiar with, And I would venture to guess maybe has never or almost never been preached during Advent before. What we're doing this season, and we started last week, is what we're we're saying we're taking the lofty, the glory, the the description of Jesus that we get at Christmas time, which is just magnificent and should be, and bringing it down to a place where we might see and hear and understand. So last week we took a look through the window in Matthew's gospel and saw the leper at the base of the mountain that Jesus went down to and healed and touched and cared for. This week we're going to look at another encounter through Mark's window and it's actually a double encounter. So we're in Mark chapter 5 verses 21 43, and I know this is a little bit longer than sometimes what we uh, approach, but I want to read this for us. I want this whole passage to be over us as we address it, especially because it's not one that probably most of us are thinking about at the season of Christmas. So, starting in, in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, 
And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt it in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This double story that we see here finds two people in the middle of crisis, right? Deep, deep crisis. One who had been bleeding for 12 years. The other in the immediate dread of the rare, very real potential of losing his daughter. So both seek out Jesus as their last hope. Twelve years of bleeding, desperate attempts to be fixed and to fix herself, what didn't she turn to? What wouldn't you turn to? Perhaps to anything or everything. There's nothing in this situation that either of these two people would not have done in their crisis. The text even tells us, Mark tells us, that she had exhausted her resources. She's at the end. She spent her money. She spent her energy. She spent her hope. And so she seeks out Jesus, just as 
Jairus does at the end of his ability, right? The physicians can't do anything more. Undoubtedly, he's turned to his family and his friends for prayer. Maybe he's even sought out um, some secret healer or something else. Who knows? In the end, they have turned to Jesus in their desperation. But it seems to me that he, they turn to him in their last hope. They're done. They're both done. And if this doesn't work, there's no hope. Friends, why is it so often that we turn to Jesus only after we've tried everything else? Only at the end? Why do we turn to drugs, alcohol, marijuana before we turn to Jesus? And some of us do. Why do we trust, turn to our bank accounts to get us out of a jam before we turn to Jesus? Why do we turn to video games to find an escape or anything else that we find an escape from to turn off when what we are called to is to be a people who are on? Christian, you need to ask yourself, is Jesus the first place you go, or is he the tail end of a long list of things you turn to first? And if you're not a Christian yet, let me just ask, what are you waiting for? What are you muddling through first before you finally get to him? And I ask it this way because I trust and I believe that if you're here and you're listening and there's any desire to know more of God, that is because he is leading you. Thank you, Rick. So what are you waiting for? Today what we want to see, what we need to see, is how Jesus responds to this man and this woman in their crises, in their desperation as their only and their last hope, so that we might see Jesus not as our last, but that we might actually be able to turn to him as our first hope. Amen? What do we see? The first thing that I want us to see, and by the way, there's a lot we can see in this beyond what we're going to talk about today. There's so much going on in these, this one big kind of two stories that we see here. The first thing we see is that Jesus responds to his children's need. Jesus responds to their need. In the verses 21 through 24, we see, and I'm just going to read this again. Um, what we see is that Jesus has crossed again in the boat to the other side, and a great crowd is there. Verse 22, then came one of the rulers in the synagogue, Jairus by name, Seeing him, he fell at his feet. He implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And what does it say? Verse 24. And he went with him. Now just think about this for a minute. Jesus doesn't know this guy. He's never met this guy, most likely. But he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I have a problem. And it is a problem that's beyond me. How does Jesus respond? He just goes. He goes. He meets him. He follows him. And he's, he's going. He's, he's ready to meet this need. Now, friends, we have a tendency to read um, in this 
that the synagogue leader maybe was an enemy, so it was kind of weird that he would be seeking Jesus. We need to get over that as Christians. Right? There are times when the Jews were the enemies of Jesus, but there are also times when they're not. And this is a moment, and this is a period of Jesus' ministry that he didn't really have enemies yet. I mean, there were some people who were starting to get some red flags about him, starting to worry. But by and large, what this guy is, is an authentic believer in God who's come to his end and he's heard about this hope and he's just going for it. He's just going for it. It's the last option that he has. Now, I can't think of a single time when someone came to Jesus and he did not respond in some way to their request of help. Can you? Can you think of a single time when someone came to Jesus authentically for help and he said, no. I can't. But rather, what we see over and over again is that Jesus meets those who come to him, those who ask, those who show up, and they receive help. They receive the help they need. They receive help beyond what they need. So often somebody comes to him and says, Lord, can you fix this? And he says, sure, I can fix that. And then he says, what? And I forgive your sins too. Right? He takes the, the one and moves it so much further beyond. This is because Jesus has the heart of God. And the heart of God is simply this. He is the giver of good gifts. He is the giver of good gifts. Matthew 7, 9 through 11. says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We worship a God who's the giver of good things, good gifts. Trouble is, many of us may be in a time right now where we have been in a time where we have struggled to say and to openly admit in our faith that we believe this. We see Jesus on the page offering help, but we know in our reality, sometimes he's pretty silent, and sometimes even pretty absent. Why does it feel like this? Why does it feel like this for us when what Jesus was and still is has not changed, and he is the giver of good things, and he responds to his children's need? The Bible offers us a few solutions to this, and I just want to give you three today. Two of them come out of James chapter 4. And in James chapter 4, we read this. Can you turn there? Starting in verse 2. You write, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And hear this part. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. Moving on to verse 3, it says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. All right, so we're given two. 
two right here. The first is we don't receive good things from Jesus because we don't ask him for good things. The second is simply this, that we ask him for the wrong things. Some of us do not and will not ask. We have this idea that we are supposed to be self-reliant. That we are supposed to be able to take care of ourselves. That we are supposed to have it all figured out. But God made us in such a way that we are dependent on Him, on this world, and on each other for our existence. Some of us do not have because we do not ask. We won't even ask our family or our friends or our church when we're in need. We silently suffer through all kinds of things without making anyone, including God, aware of our need. But we miss that God is a giver. And when we do not ask, what we're doing is saying to God, I don't need you. You know what God says to us when we tell him, I don't need you? He says, okay. We do not have because we do not ask. For some of us, what that means is that we really need to build the habit of asking. And that's trouble for some of us. Because we really don't. We, it's just ingrained in us. Maybe our dad's or our parents, our family of origin, whatever, came, like just instilled in us that we do not ask for help. That may be the case. If that's you, you need to work. You need to build the habit of asking. And it really is a habit. Start small. Every day. Every day, turn to the Lord and say, Lord, this one little thing. And it can be little. Non-consequential, small. Right? And every day you're saying, Lord, I, I really need this. I need this. And every day do that. And maybe in like week two or three or four, or maybe it takes you six months to get there, you start realizing that there's some bigger things that you can ask for. And the Lord will lead you and grow you in that. He calls us to ask. He is glorified when we ask. So friends, we need to be a people who ask. You're thinking, well, Matt, I do ask. I ask a lot. In fact, I pray every single day, and the Lord doesn't take it away, does he, Kelly? Sometimes we ask, but what we're doing is asking for the wrong things. Now, let me just say really quickly, Kelly, I'm not saying you're asking for the wrong things in this next moment, okay? <laughs> Sometimes we ask for the wrong things. James describes the wrong things as those things that are sought for our passions. Now, if I can exaggerate a bit here for emphasis uh, without offending anyone, which I probably can't do, but here we go. Um, if you ask for a prostitute tonight, God is going to say no. Okay? It's not going to happen. If you ask, if you ask God for something that is outside of his character, and something that is outside of our character as the redeemed sons and daughters of God, he's going to say no. Because it's, it's not for us. It's not good for us. 
If your kids ask for something that will hurt them in love, you easily say no. But with delight, when your kid asks for something they need and that will be good for them, you say yes. And as a parent, I love it when my kids ask me for good things. I love being able to provide for my kids. That's because God made me in his image. And so God loves, he delights in giving us good things, but he does not delight in giving us wrong things, bad things, evil things, things that will hurt us. And the trouble is sometimes we don't know what those things are. For some, for reasons beyond our understanding, you can imagine this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years has asked hundreds thousands of times, Lord, heal me, fix me. And every one of us would look at that and think, yeah, that's a good thing, right? So what happens when we do ask, and we're asking for the right things, but it still doesn't happen? That's where we find our third biblical answer in this and that, friends, is that our perspective of timing is often off. The Bible assures us that we will be given the good things that we pray for. We will be. Jesus says, ask and you shall receive. There is no qualifier in that. Except it be a good thing, good for you and good for the glory of God. In Habakkuk 2.3 he writes, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. In Isaiah 41, 31, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Many good things in our lives only come in the season they are supposed to be there. And God, who knows best, knows when that season is. For some of us, that good season could be right now, and the Lord, we just feel blessing us over and over again with various things, stuff even, with faith and belief. For others of us, we are struggling because the Lord has not sought it, sought it good to give us a pain-free existence or life or season. And we're struggling. God's perspective of the best timing for good things is different than ours. And as I look at this story and I think through both of these two, Jairus, whose daughter is dying and who ultimately... Jesus is too late to heal. And this woman who has been suffering for 12 years, what about the timing, Lord? What about the timing? Friends, do we have enough faith to trust that God, that Jesus will give us good things at the right time? See, the first thing we see is that Jesus does respond to our need. 
The second thing that we need to see here is that Jesus responds in the right place at the right time. In the right place at the right time. Now, many of you know I'm a geek. I am. My favorite story, aside from God's redemptive story in the Bible, is the Lord of the Rings. And people laugh at me when I make these references because, like, we're talking about something that is in pop culture like 20 years ago. Yes, it was 20 years ago when the first of the movies came out, and it was uh, 100 years ago. I mean, it was a long time ago that the books came out, right? People laugh at me in these situations, but I love the story. I go back to it all the time. The reason I love this story is because J.R. Tolkien, who was a believer, wrote his faith into the story. Not in an obvious, like, cliche kind of way, the way C.S. Lewis does. And yes, I just called C.S. Lewis cliche. But in such a way that the character, there is no character that represents Jesus. As you look at the story, if you go back to them, there is no, no character that represents Jesus. There are numerous characters that represent Jesus. In fact, not a one of them represents Jesus until you take all of them together and add them up. And you know what you have at that point? The church. Okay? The Fellowship of the Ring is the church in many ways, called on this dangerous adventure of mission and life and all this stuff that just fires me up. I love it. And there's a line in The Lord of the Rings that some of you may remember from Gandalf. He says, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And friends, in that, Gandalf is imitating Christ. Because Christ is never late, nor is he early. Christ arrives precisely when he means to. We'll look at this passage and see this truth. Verse 23, we'll start there. Actually, go back to Mark. Right, Jesus has just arrived. He's just gotten to that side of the, 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 the lake. And suddenly, Jairus, a, a man from the synagogue, Jairus by name, seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Jesus arrives on the scene at just the right time. Moving forward, we get to verse 25. It says, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, uh, but rather grew worse. Now going back to verse 21, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. One of the things I love about Jesus in the gospels is he does everything with intention. He doesn't accidentally land on a shore. He doesn't accidentally walk through the city streets when he does. Everything Jesus does is on purpose. And so why is he there that day? He is there for Jairus and his daughter and for this woman. And for who knows countless how many other people he helped, served, healed, cared for, and taught that day. He is there on purpose. 
It's not an accident. If he hadn't gone there that day, then we don't know what would happen. But this was appointed for him to do and to be in this place and in this time. Now we may respond, but look, he was too late to heal the girl. And she died. And the people were devastated. And the family was beyond hope. We might also say, hey, wait a minute, 12 years to heal this woman? Here's the thing. This town is probably like 10 miles from where Jesus grew up. At any point in the last 30 years, Jesus could have healed this woman. Why let her go through what she went through for so long? Why let Jairus and his family think this girl was dead? Why? Friends, what is 12 years to eternity? What is 12 years to eternity? Right? What is the hour? Who knows how long it took Jesus to walk from the streets after she had died? What is that hour? What is that two hours? Whatever it was to Jairus' family. Friends, 2020 has been the longest year of many of our lives. It's been weird and hard. And i got to be honest, I suspect the next two months are going to make 2020 look like nothing. Okay? We have felt heartache, loss, and pain. And we're saying, Lord, come quickly. And he tarries. He's not here yet. No matter how many times we pray or sing, come thou long expected Jesus, he hasn't walked through the door yet. And we have to say why. He's not on time to heal this girl before she dies. He's not on time to save this woman from 12 years of pain. But what is he on time for? He is on time to do some amazing work in these people's lives that will be beyond anything they would have expected or thought possible 12 years ago or even in a couple hours ago in the case of Jairus' family. There is a demonstration of God's power through this. And we say, yeah, but you're going to change, trade God's power for our suffering? Yes. Because he traded his suffering. Right? He traded his suffering for his glory. So church, when we look at this, we see that he is in the right place at the right time. This woman who is beyond hope, she's turned to everything else. Well, guess what? Jesus is her only salvation. Jarius, the same thing. There is no hope here. But Jesus shows up at the right time on the right day to change everything. Church, we are like kids waiting for Christmas. Counting down the days, wishing it was here right now. But if we somehow could fast forward, for their benefit of course, and suddenly be at Christmas without the weeks in advance, what would that do for us? What would we miss out on? 
there are amazing preparations to get ready for Christmas. You know, everything from decorating trees and wrapping, buying presents and wrapping presents and doing our Advent services, which has been really good and just put me in this great frame of mind for Advent. All the preparations, all of those things, the invitations that are made if we're going to be with people or whatnot. And then we just skip it all and, all right, we have a day. Well, the next day it's done. Both of these individuals have been waiting with the Jewish people, waiting for the Messiah for thousands of years. And both of them were waiting for a personal rescue as well. Jairus waited as Jesus made his way through the crowd and stopped to minister to this woman. Man, if I was him, I would have been yelling at Jesus, right? There's only one priority in that moment, and that's the daughter. The woman had waited 12 years for healing, exhausting her faith, her finances, and likely her friends. But Jesus came to the right place in the right day at the right time for the best good and the most glory. For both Jesus showed up in church. I want you to hear this. For the people of God, the Savior shows up. It is his nature to show up at the right time, in the right place, and in the best way. And he will come again. He promises he will come again at the right time, the end of history, when people from every tongue, tribe, and nation who have been appointed to salvation will follow him. What does that mean? It means people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Those who have spoken languages that we don't even know or couldn't know at this point. Tribes and nations that are extinct and gone. All the way to those who will be at the end. Which means what we're waiting for. We are waiting for his fulfillment of time, not ours. It's in his time and his place, not ours. So what we see is that Jesus responds to his children. He also responds to his children at the right time and in the right way. And lastly, what we see is that Jesus responds in kindness to our quiet acts of desperation. Jesus acts in kindness to our quiet acts of desperation. Now I just want to tell you, um, out of everything I've said and we've come to in this passage, this right here I think is, is my favorite. Let's look at verses 28 to 34 again. And this focuses in, in on the woman a little bit. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Church, the keys to the kingdom are right in front of her. The prince of glory, and she knows this. She's convinced of this. 
Because she says to herself in such a way that we know now that all she has to do is touch a little bit of his clothes and her problems will be solved. Right? There's an amazing faith in that. Do not miss this. She knows exactly who Jesus is. She has all the confidence and all the faith. And she settles for touching his garment. Last week we looked at the leper who asked for healing. And what did Jesus do? He touched the leper. He touched him. Leper who probably hadn't been touched in years and years and years. Well, the same thing is true for this woman. A woman who's constantly bleeding is constantly unclean. She can't worship at the temple just as much as the leper can't. Nobody in her family or friends has touched her for 12 years because if they do, they can't worship either until they go through a whole process of getting clean. She's standing before the king of the universe and she knows it and she settles for touching his clothes. Church, do we settle for touching the clothes of Jesus when we have all of Jesus right in front of us? And yet Jesus responds in kindness. This is what you see in Jesus. He responds in kindness over and over and over again. He doesn't let her move on. Right? He could have been content. He's got things to do. He could have just let her have her moment and, and leave. Instead, he calls out through the crowd. He interrupts everything that's going on. And he calls attention to this woman and he speaks with her specifically. And he speaks words of compassion, gentle and wonderful. Jarius comes to Jesus with the simple request of healing for his daughter. And don't miss this. Jesus could have just said, go. Your daughter is healed. He's done that before when people sought healing for someone who wasn't with them. He just said, go. You'll find that the hour and the time, this is when they were healed. Amen. Jarius has the simple request of healing his daughter. Jesus could have in that moment sent him on his way with the power of his words alone. Jarius wanted this small thing. Now, it's pretty big, right? But in comparison to the resurrection that happened, it's pretty small. He wanted a healing, and what he received was a resurrection. We have this tendency to approach Jesus with the tiniest, smallest bit of us. And he responds with all of him. Church, I want to invite you to respond to Jesus with all of you. And see how amazing it is when he responds in kind. Because he can't be outgiven. He can't be out-responded to. And I believe the measure with which we approach him is the me measure with which he approaches us. If you're missing out on something, you got to ask yourself, am I giving my all or am I giving my pinky? There is so much more for us than what we seek, what we ask for. There is so much more for our relationship with, with him than what we give him. 
Let me say this. The key to the kingdom is before us. There is an invitation to new life filled with purpose and mission. Enough to fill the remaining years of a man who came too late and thinks I only have a few years left to make up for that, for the previous life I lived. Enough to fill the remaining years of a child who comes to him in life, finds purpose, and serves him for a hundred years. But all we give him is this tiny little bit. And out of it, all we get is a tiny little bit. When what we could be given, what we are offered, is new life, not just a little bit different life, not just a life with a little bit of correction, but a new life. The life that he offers to this girl, this 12-year-old girl, Jairus' daughter, who was dead and is now alive. Man, will you give him that? Will you give him that for Christmas? Because <laughs> it's the only thing on his list. That we would give our lives to him, that he could use them however he wants, for his goodness and for his glory and for our good. I urge you today to come before the Lord. If that's in a moment of desperation, maybe you're at the end, you've just, you're at the end. You say, Lord, I should have come sooner. I need to come now. Or maybe you're coming in this place of hope and faith and, and you're just saying, Lord, I should have come sooner. I should have come with my all, but here I am now. What I want us to do as a church, as a people, is to trust in the kindness of Jesus. To know that he responds to his children to know that he responds at the right time and to know that he responds to our meager, small acts of devotion with all of himself. Would you pray with me? God, as we come before you, as we look through the window and see this story play out and see you interacting with people who are just like us, God, I pray that we would be encouraged and have hope and, and find a joy in a life through all of this. Lord, we know that you call us to give our lives, that you promise us you will make us something new out of those given lives. I pray, God, that we would see that and be that, Lord. I pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us to go forth into this world as redeemed and changed people on mission for your purpose. And Lord, if there's anyone here right now who has not given their life to you, and I mean given all of their life to you, God, I pray that today would be that day, whether they're sitting here in a pew or on a couch at home, God, that your spirit would speak to them and lead them to make that decision to say, Lord, all of me. Take all of me. God, we trust that you are, and you are doing that kind of work in and amongst us right now. Thank you for your goodness, your kindness, and your glory, Lord. We, we give you our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.